Hello everyone, Al here. Now, for anyone who's been listening to the show since the beginning, what you're about to hear, you probably heard the first time it was released. But anyone who started listening to the show in the last few years, well, as you went back to look through the earlier episodes, you would have found that five of them are missing. Episodes 17, 35, 42, 49, and 71. And this was because a few years ago, I removed them due to a complaint about copyright ownership. Apparently, there was a complaint I had used some copyrighted material in them. Well, what specific material was used? I have no idea. Despite me sending numerous emails to both my hosting site and the company that was complaining, I was never informed of what was the problem, just that there was a problem. Now, without knowing what the issue was, the only way to keep the show on the site is to just have removed those episodes completely. Looking back at them, the one, the one thing I can see so far, I haven't listened to all of them yet, but the one thing I can see so far they all do have in common is a promo for a show that's ended now, Parallel Lines, a DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, which used the song Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. It's taken me some time, but I finally got off my butt and I'm starting to re-edit these episodes to remove that as well as anything else that possibly could be considered copyright material. Although... As I've finished doing this episode, episode 17, so far the promo is the only thing I heard at all that was on there, so that's probably what it is. But anyway, I'm going to be re-releasing these episodes this year. By the end of the year, everything's going to be in the feed. Of course, in the wrong order, but, you know, hey, you can't have everything. Alright, so here it is, representing episode 17 with myself and John Wilson, talking about the Incredible Hulk 158, the Hulk, where the Hulk goes to counter-Earth. Enjoy. Welcome back to Resurrections, and Adam Warlock podcast. I'm Al Sedano. And I'm John Wilson. Yep, John's back, everybody. And today we are going to be talking about Incredible Hulk 158. So wait, 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 wait. The Incredible Hulk who? You know, big green guy gets angry. Smash. I thought we were talking about the big Smash. orange guy that gets angry. Oh, well, yeah, he does get angry. Or at least last time he was angry. But he's happier in this one. He's getting a break. I guess. He's taking a vacation. Taking a vacation. Let's just calm ourselves a moment. Since we only have one panel in this story anyway, we'll let the green guy take over the anger issues. Yeah, and actually, from what I read of the next issue, it looks like he was taking a vacation. <laughs> well, so, you know, it was the 70s. He probably had to smoke some pot. You know, mellow out, man. He just had to chill. But yes, this <laughs> is a bit of a flashback to the first few episodes of this show, because Adam barely appears in this. And I originally wasn't going to bother doing this until I actually read the issue and realized that in the uh, the Incredible Hulk issues that they used to tie up the Warlock run, because it gets canceled before they finish the story, a lot of the stuff that 
shows up here and is not used again in the Warlock run, pops back up again. And at least and also, of what's going on. And the events here also get mentioned in the next issue of Warlock. So even though Warlock's not involved very much here, the whole Counter-Earth story is very much a big player. And um, it, it's, it, it does get picked up on later. Exactly. And yeah, this is basically the story of Counter-Earth as well. And since there's really not many other issues that dis- discuss Counter-Earth anyway, might as well. Right. And anyway, I like Hulk. I mean, that's one downside of doing a podcast on just one book is that you really don't get to talk about things that are outside of it. So, and kind of and we'll, we'll be picking ourselves up a new friend of a uh, new friend of Warlock by this mm-hmm. by doing this. Yeah, that's true. Something new to mention, which will be fun. Oh, um, and speaking of Adam's friends, actually, going to be changing up the format on that one a little bit because I actually had the original issue for Warlock number three. Sweet. So. When we so the uh, Warlock's friends for this month, this episode, the next one, which is for this one will be FF and the next one will be Thor, are actually going to be the solicitations they use in the bullpen bulletin. Awesome. So that will be entertaining. I'm actually kicking myself. I forgot I had Warlock number two when we recorded that one. Oh, so you have two and three? Yeah, actually, I have two, three, five, six, seven. So at least for those, I'll have the original issues. Cool. But not this one. Not this one. This one is still the Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. Or the Marvel DCU, as I like to call it. But they don't <laughs> Marvel needs its own DCU. Exactly. Well, you know, there was a big rumor in, like, 80 they were going to buy them. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that. Marvel and DC almost became one company. Can you imagine Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man becoming a regular thing? Actually, that would have been an interesting crossover when they were married. You know, when that uh, happened. Yeah. Let Lois Lane and Mary Jane hang out together for a while. Exactly. The fact that probably Superman's the person Spider-Man probably would trust his identity with back then. Anyway, uh, that's off topic. Uh, uh, but anyways, we should talk about some... Some orange people, yeah. or some green people. Both, you know. Um, I have no problem with colors, green, orange, whatever. No prejudice here. They're all, you know, it's just a secondary thing. We can have some purple people in here, too. Oh, we have purple pants. Of course, it's the whole... We have a gray guy. Well, mostly Awesome. Because we have the rhino. Exactly. Now, right. are you... Fl- go ahead. No, no, I would say, okay, let's go. But you're already gone. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Rhino at all? Have you read a lot of him? Oh, yeah. I've read plenty of him. In fact, I, one of the earlier comics I had, because I had a bunch of issues, I would get from an uncle who worked in something to do with recycling, and he would get like a bunch of comic issues, some of which the covers were partially ripped, cut off in the top for returns, some weren't. And one of the earliest ones was the Marvel Tales, which reprinted the first Rhino. Okay. Well, I met the Rhino through Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, which was a little mini-series that ran in the very early 90s. And then the next Rhino story I read was probably when I read old issues of Spider-Man and saw him in an early Romita run uh, issue. But between those like two stories, that 25-ish years in there, he hardly ever fought Spider-Man at all. He was mainly a Hulk villain. And so with the Rhino fighting the Hulk in this story that is very much of the era, but it seems very strange to me because in my mind, the Rhino's a Spider-Man bad guy. Yeah, me too, because I, my introduction was his introduction, you know, I mean, not originally, but 
the reprint of it. And like you said, he was a Spidey villain. And back then, yeah, they really didn't do much trading of villains. Usually if you appeared in somebody's book, you were their villain for the most part. You know, occasionally mm-hmm. you would fight somebody else, but they would make a big deal out of it. Right, you know, right. Dr. Doom was fighting somebody else, like when Dr. Doom would fight the Avengers, they'd be like, oh, it's Dr. Doom. And whenever they, uh, whenever they had the Acts of Vengeance storyline, everybody was switching up superheroes and villains. Yes. Uh, I think it was the second Masters of Evil storyline where all the Masters of Evil switched up which Avengers they were going to take on. Because in the Masters of Evil, at least in the early teams, each villain member was a particular hero's villain. Yes, yeah. Oh, you're talking about, yeah. You're talking about, you know, Acts of Vengeance, but now you're jumping back to the original Masters yeah, of yeah, yeah. the 60s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one of the things they did early on. Yeah, on like the second story, you're right, where they, they switched up to who they were fighting. Yeah, I like that idea. We haven't been able to beat these heroes separately, so let's team up and then individually fight the guy we were fighting anyway that we couldn't beat. <laughs> Wait. And so you have the absorbing man. You have the absorbing man going up against Ant Man, and you have the egghead going up against Thor. Now tell me if that's a good matchup or not. Well, for absorbing man, it is. (laughs) At least that was a little bit more sense. But yeah. Uh, And the Mettler. At least he was in the original part. I love the Mettler. So horrible. The Mettler? Giant. Yeah. He would fight Iron Man because he can melt stuff. Gotcha. Although you think he would go against other heroes who weren't wearing armor, because then you're just melting them. Yeah. You get the armor first, then the guy, you know? <laughs> you fight Captain America, you're just fighting, you're just melting a person's arm. That would be bad. Or a giant man, you know, which he doesn't have chainmail armor. And Shall we dive into a, uh, in, into a uh, synopsis? Sure. Diving. Now, you have been dived. Incredible Hulk number 158. Frenzy on a Faraway World. Written by Steve Gerber and Roy Thomas. Penciled by Herb Trimpey. Inked by Sal Trapini. Colorist is Unknown. Lettered by John Costanza. Edited by Roy Thomas. Cover art by Herb Trimpey. It had a cover date of December 1972 and an on-sale date of August 29th, 1972. The original cover price was $0.20. Cents. This issue starts out with the Hulk and Rhino on a spacecraft heading away from Earth. Well, actually, the Rhino is in it, and Hulk is on top of it, trying to tear it apart to get to the Rhino. The Hulk is pissed at Rhino for his actions of the past issue, but the Rhino's confused at how he got there. That's because we learned that the Rhino's mind had been taken over by the leader. Poor Rhino. The Hulk and Rhino then proceed to fight on top of the ship for days, while it orbits the sun and then goes beyond. The ship ends up on counter-Earth, with the two behemoths still fighting. The Hulk throws the Rhino off of the ship, and he lands with enough force that it feels like an earthquake to Adam Warlock and his young followers, who appear to be having a picnic. Jason suggests that they check it out, but Adam says they have other things to do, and that's all we have of Adam Warlock this episode. Back to the Hulk. The ship hits a mountain, and Hulk falls off. He ends up landing in a nearby city, right between a standoff between two warring fractions of new men. One led by Cobra, who we have seen before, and the other by new character, Procunus. Procunus offers the Hulk sanctuary, and they leave. The army shows up, led by counter-earth version of General Thunderbolt Ross, and apparently have shot one of the new men, but instead of a man or man-like creature, only a skunk is left. 
Ross is harassed by reporter Jason Anders, who somehow thinks skunks are pets. Ross attempts to get rid of Anders, but does not make sure the job is done. So when his daughter and son-in-law, that is counter-earth versions of Betty Ross and Bruce Banner, arrive and talk about the Crest spaceship they found, Anders is able to report on that. It is now most likely days later, and we find Banner and his wife inspecting the now-repaired, it hit a mountain, remember, spacecraft. But then the Hulk shows up along with the benevolent New Men army. The Hulk is enraged at seeing Banner and accuses him of causing the Hulk to be hated. Since this Banner never became the Hulk, he has no idea what's going on. The Hulk is then attacked by Banner's seven-year-old son, and this confuses Hulk, who spends some time with his eyes closed, trying to think. Before he can form any thoughts, the evil army of new men show up, with their new ally, the Rhino. A large battle breaks out while the leader attempts to recall the ship so as to strand the Hulk and Rhino on Counter-Earth. However, the Hulk notices the ship moving, and having figured out he is on the wrong Earth, knocks the Rhino out and carries him aboard. Now calm, the Hulk turns back to Banner, who retains some memory of these issues events. Remembering that the Counter-Earth version of himself was married to Betty, Bruce hopes there is still a chance for himself and his Betty. However, back on the regular Earth, we see the wedding of Betty Ross to Major Glenn Talbot. Poor Banner. And jumping out of the synopsis, let's see what we thought about Hulk 158. We should start with the cover, because that's on top. Now, the cover, you wouldn't know had anything to do with Adam Warlock, but they do talk about Counter-Earth on the cover. So if you knew Adam Warlock and saw this, you might grab it. Otherwise, it just looks like any other Hulk story. Yeah, you wouldn't have no idea what Counter-Earth was if you weren't reading the Warlock or at least the first two issues of Marvel Premiere. But the Hulk getting shot into space and other planets is was not that uncommon a thing in the 60s and 70s. So the idea of Hulk being somewhere else on some alien world fighting a bad guy, that's just, you know, Tuesday. Yeah, in fact, in the uh, Marvel Premiere 1, in the flashback, that ha- that's the fla- part of the flashback, that they were, uh, the High Revolutionary was with his new men on another world, and the Hulk shows up. Just because. Oh, yeah. You know, he got lost. Light was on. Knock, knock. Hulk hungry. So, I guess what we do see is we see the snake man. We were calling him Serpentor a couple episodes back, but the the, the the snaky lieutenant of the man-beast is down there in the crowd. But again, that's another thing where if you know Warlock, you'll recognize this person. If you don't know Warlock, this is just the Hulk on an alien world. It looks pretty exciting and dynamic. They're fighting on a flying car, maybe. And it looks pretty yeah. fun. We should get it. Yeah, and you're wondering, you know, maybe you're wondering why General Ross is on the ceiling world. Right. I mean, they don't say it's General Ross, but if I was reading the Hulk back then and I saw the cover of this and I saw this guy, you know, with the army man, but he was in a blue outfit and he had a cigar and white hair, I would assume it was General Ross. General Ross. Because that's usually who's there. That is usually who's there. But I will say, uh, I'm a little sad because it looks like this is going to be near the end of the, uh, those Bronze Age covers I, ha- I like, where they have, like, the borders, where it looks like it's the panel picture in the cover instead of the whole cover. Oh, yeah, that kind of annoys me, actually, but that's okay. Well, they're going away very soon, because this one, I mean, there's really no border on top. It's only a little bit on the bottom. And by issue five of Warlock, it's completely gone. But this is a Roy Thomas um, 
well, he was involved. He wasn't writing it, but he plotted, he plotted and edited. Steve Gerber was writing. But I like, because Roy Thomas was our writer over on Adam Warlock. And I do like when a writer of more than one book finds opportunities to have those books interact somehow. Yeah, it still ties in. And if you were reading Adam Warlock at the time and you read Hulk as well, it works. And on the other hand, if you were reading Hulk, you really didn't really affect you. Not like you had to know what was going on. They fill you in completely, and it's only one shot. My two uh, favorite examples of that recently, where you have one guy writing two books and he finds a story way to blend them together, was Throne of Atlantis from Jeff Johns with Justice League and Aquaman, and then the the Trial of Jean Grey from Brian Michael Bendis, because he was writing Guardians of the Galaxy and All-New X-Men. And both of those crossovers were really pretty awesome for me. I like both of them, too. I remember, because it was more recent, I remember the Guardians X-Men one a lot more, but... Yes. And those, I mean, those also affected the books a lot more. I mean, for one thing, you have that whole Kitty Pride Star-Lord flirtation going on. Mm-hmm. And also, Cyclops lost the team. Yes, yes. And, but, you uh, know, I like when they tie that, tie their, their books in together. Because generally, if you're like a creator, you're probably going to read the other stuff you're doing. At least I do. Yeah. My notes on this story, I don't have a whole lot of them, so I'll follow your lead because, like, my first note doesn't come until page six. Okay, yeah, I have some notes for the first for the things. My first one actually is on the first page. Uh, like you said, Roy Thomas isn't the writer, but he does the plot and editing, so not like what we just talked about, but also it's him still guiding the Counter-Earth story. Not just the Warlock story, but the whole story of this kind of Earth. It's like Earth 2 when he was doing All-Star Squadron. It's his world. Right. You know, he might have other people playing there a bit, but he's in charge of what happens. But this is a script by Steve Gerber, and I believe this is maybe not the first, but this is one of the early, very early few Steve Gerber works at Marvel or anywhere. Um, I like Steve Gerber a lot. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I was just trying to think. Because um, in the bullpen for Warlock 3, they do talk about how he's a new person there. I don't remember when his Howard the Duck started up. I think that's... I'm trying to remember, because I had the essential of that, but it's like 76, I think. Okay, so that was much later down the road. But yeah, so this is early Steve Gerber, and I like Steve Gerber a lot, because he gets... I mean, not in this issue so much, but he can get really weird and crazy, and I like that. I mean, I like Morrison stuff, so it makes sense I would like Steve Gerber. He's like a proto-Morrison in a lot of ways. He, he is a bit. And in, the, in like the weirdness and going out there. I remember Lily, my daughter, really uh, liked the look of Howard the Duck and thought it'd be fun to read some of his comics. So I got her the essential, Marvel essential volume of Howard the Duck. And uh, I think she was 10 at the time. And poor girl just couldn't really get very far into it. Oh, yeah, I can, I can imagine that going overhead. She might get more into it now or in the next year or two. Right. You know, I was just looking at the um, the history of The Incredible Hulk and who was writing what when. We made the big deal about how it's really neat whenever one writer can bring two different books together. Archie Goodwin was actually writing The Incredible Hulk up until the previous issue. And then Steve Englehart takes over with the issue after this. So this particular issue with um, Steve Gerber and Roy Thomas was actually a connective tissue in between two stories thing. 
with Roy Thomas being the editor on the book, he just stepped in to write a story. Oh, and that's used cool. Yeah, used Counter Earth on the way. So anyways, just a little tidbit there. Dr. Hugh, what's got you geeked? Well, Paul, I'm geeked because we're recording our very first promo for GeekPod. What's GeekPod? GeekPod is a eclectic celebration of Nobody all things Nobody uses geek. the word eclectic ever in real Seriously, life. Seriously, Ever. <laughs> I mean, you're just trying to sound smart. <laughs> go on, go on. It's a call to action to let your geek flag fly proudly. Say that three times fast. No. The guys share their <laughs> opinions, the guys being us, and unique perspectives on everything from comic books the sports, and anything in between. No topic is off-limits. Come experience the show that's being called Intelligently Irreverent and Good-Naturedly Offensive. Who says that? Your mom. <laughs> that's just me, man. Just me. GeekPod. Each and every week. Each and every week? Come on Okay, now. so <laughs> twice a month, maybe? Yeah, the yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> One week can all show up. Come join in on the fun. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and more. That's geekpod.com. G33KPOD. That's So, anyway, we have. Like then synopsis, Hulk and uh, Rhino flying off in the spaceship with Hulk riding on the outside, of course, Team Wolf style. And still talking, even though they're in space. Eh, he's the Hulk. Hulk smash puny vacuum. <laughs> yeah. I do like here, this is different for this time, is that the, uh, the recap is not done at the whole page, really, of like flashback stuff right here. It's just done in the uh, captions. They just tell you real quick what happened. Yeah. Like, yeah, leader, you took over Rhino's mind, made him fight the Hulk, they got him the spaceship leader's controlling, and they left her. Like, okay, that's good. And give him a room story. I do wonder, since they left the Earth in their ship at the end of last issue, and they're in the ship in space at the end of this issue, I would, I'm wondering if we read Hulk's 155, 156, 157, 159, 160, 161, I wonder how much this particular filler issue would even feel like it was needed. You know what I'm saying? True. Because, I mean, the issue before obviously ended with the Hulk and Rhino both on the ship and awake, and this issue ends with the Rhino knocked out, but I could see them beginning the next one having the Rhino already be awake and fighting the Hulk again. Right. I just I, I am very curious about how how that plays out, but that's for whenever I read the Bronze Age Hulk stories that I haven't read yet. Same here, but no interesting thought. I actually have to remember that when I read those eventually, whenever that is. So anyway, I'm like page two. I'm liking the fact that uh, unlike typical usually versions of him, the Rhino's not looking to fight here. The Rhino's almost like the comedic relief here. You know, the Hulk smashing up the ship and wants to fight him because he's pissed off. And the Rhino's like, you're you're losing all the air! Well, he knows that in space no one can hear you scream, and he just wants to survive. It's funny, the Hulk's calling the leader because the leader was controlling him. The Rhino's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) 
I I hate when my brain gets taken over by an outside influence. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, that's kind of like breaking the day. Yeah. Keeps the boredom. But yeah, no, Rhino's amusing there. And then we have a creepy-looking leader, and I guess he's paralyzed at this point. I honestly have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's still green here instead of red like he is in the current comics. Okay, I've seen Red Leader, so that's the same leader? I thought there was a second leader. Like, nope, you know, same leader, same Sam Stern's character. Doesn't he go from, like, being sort of a rectangular head to having, like, a big bulbous brain on top of his head? Yes, that's during the uh, Peter David run. Okay. Well, he's lost that by 2014. Oh, and now he looks... Yeah, that's right, because the Red Leader looks like this, but red. But red, yeah. Okay, that was another reason why I thought it was a different guy. I like the Bulbous head better. Yeah, there was something about him losing his intelligence, but it getting uploaded to the internet or something, and so he can jack in and reconnect to I don't know. I was reading Thunderbolts because Venom was in it, and then whenever Venom left the team, I stopped reading Thunderbolts. That's all I know about it, yeah, is from looking at covers of Thunderbolts. So anyway, Hulk and Rhino are fighting on top of the ship now, and... Um, I don't know, are they fighting for days, or is this ship just really, 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 really fast? Because, <laughs> I mean, they just shoot around the sun and get to counter-Earth. It's going to take, like, a couple days to get to the sun. Yeah. Even longer than that. Well, just to the moon and back is a week. Maybe they just really, really accelerated. And it's just going super fast right now. Yeah, or maybe we could just, I guess we just assume that the leader is that smart, and it's not like he's going to share his uh, rocket work with NASA. No, you were right. It says a battle that will last for days by Earth Reckoning. So the Hulk and the Rhino, because it makes sense, are standing on top of their ship, fighting in space for days. I mean, do they pee? Do they eat? No. They're in space. You can't eat in space. There's nothing to eat. Now, I could see Hulk doing that. You know, I could buy that. But, I don't know. I didn't mean, the Rhino I never really thought of as that powerful. I mean, he's strong enough to hold up against the Hulk. But I would not say for days, and I definitely don't think he could keep up that pace constantly like the Hulk could. Yeah, he's enough to give the Hulk a run for his money. He's not enough to... He's he's not... He doesn't have the stamina the Hulk has. Yeah, if it was the Abomination, I could go with that one. Or right, Juggernaut, just ask definitely. Betty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so they finally get to Counter-Earth. And, and, okay, so we saw the High Evolutionary make a big old magical barrier around Counter-Earth putting it slightly out of sync with the rest of the universe so that no one would ever see it. And my thinking is that this magical barrier isn't so magical if you can just fly right through it. It's not that good if you, you know, just make a wrong turn. And And suddenly you're there. Yeah. Because, I mean, look at that barrier. No one knows, you know, it's just invisible. And people are like, all right, well, this is a clear route. Let's fly this way. Right. You know, again... High Revolutionary doesn't think as far ahead as he thinks he does. <laughs> I'm putting him in as one of those people who think they know everything, and therefore they'll make a lot of mistakes because they don't assume they have to check. Because I know everything, so why should I bother checking? I know I, I know I was right. 
because this seems to happen a lot with him. They crash land on the planet, and we have hi, Adam Warlock, and goodbye, Adam Warlock. And that's it. Warlock's out. He is a so bo- next is time a on Resurrections. Issue's over. We're going to take a nap now. Yep. And then drink. No, but anyway, so, yeah, the Hulk also falls off the ship because the ship bounces off a mountain. I hate that. And the Hulk falls. Now, I like the I'm serious. I'm looking at these bottom panels here, and this is definitely like a wooded mountain area. Right. But then you get to the next page, and Hulk lands right in the middle of the city. I mean, yeah, the city could be near the mountain, but the way they make it look, it looks like that it's a completely pristine forest area. And yet somehow he lands right in the middle of the city. Well, I guess once he smacks that mountain, he has a pretty wide arc that he tumbles through. It's like in the Avengers, whenever he's, oh, and oh, like yeah, sort of goes sailing through the air. That was fun. Yeah, that was fun. But yeah. So, and now this is when we get to the part, which is the one of the reasons we're doing the book, is we have a civil war going on between the new men. Yes, which we get really very little, as in no hint of, in the actual Warlock story. Yeah, uh, this does not appear at all, and while the leader of the one side, uh, Cobra, or Sopranthor, as we like to call him, is in the Warlock book, the leader of the Rebe- Rebels, which apparently are now good guys, uh, Porcunus, has not appeared, and just a spoiler, anybody, will not appear in any issue of Warlock. Does he come, Does this Civil War and this New Men faction element, does this come back in the Hulk follow-up issues? Yes. Okay. And that's the whole reason why I want to do it, because you start reading those Hulk issues, and they're like, where did this come from? Who are these people? Why are they helping them? At least this issue kind of gives you some reason for that, for them to be there. Okay, cool. But yeah, apparently after the Man Beast died, I guess there was a split, and I guess half the group decided, Man Beast maybe was a dick. Let's try another way. And they apparently want peace now. And I kind of like that because you do have the tendency in comics and in science fiction in general, especially televised science fiction, to sort of paint all of one race with one brush. Like, all Klingons are like this. All Romulans are like that. And so you have all the new men are the the evil followers of the man-beast. They're all the the animal-headed humanoids, and they must all be quenched. Um, except that not really. You actually had some people who were following the man-beast maybe reluctantly. Maybe there was a lot of off-panel threatening and, and cajoling that was being done. But in any case, now that the man-beast was killed last issue, you have a whole group of new men who didn't like following him and don't want to anymore. Yeah, and I like that. That's, that's neat. Plus, I mean, from what I understood from reading it, it looks like most of the new men that were following him, the man-beast created himself. So it stands to reason if the man-beast would rebel against the high evolutionary who created him, why wouldn't some of his creations rebel against the man-beast? Sounds good to me. And also here we get another uh, counter-earth doppelganger, or doppelgangers, because we have the counter-earth versions of uh, Major Glenn Talbot and uh, General Thunderbolt Ross. Talbot was in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. Yes, he did show up near, like, after the Captain America issue episode. Right. Right? Right. Yes. Yes, I remember him being there. I thought that was cool. We do get so, a yeah, brief cameo of High Evolutionary, which was pretty cool. 
looking very Transformer-ish, I thought. I mean, that was really looking metallic in the first panel. Yeah, yeah. He has those really thick lips. I feel like he has, even his armor still has a little divot uh, under, right under his nose and the middle of his lip. Metal, which I'm always amused by when people, they put that on there. Like, he also has <laughs> eyebrows. Yeah, he does have eyebrows. Some pretty interesting eyebrow powers going on there. Yeah, I mean, is that needed in armor? <laughs> now, we see that the army men shot at a new man. He has de-evolved somehow into a skunk. Yeah. So do new men always revert to animal form when they're killed? Not that I've seen before, but um, this also is going without thinking about the uh, the man-beast process, how, like, he, even though he created these new men, they still turn against him. Maybe, he, you know, he's just his process wasn't as good as the high evolutionaries. Maybe. Why... You know, a, a bunch of them return against him, but also, you know, I mean, after he died, but still they turned against. But also, you know, they get killed and they turn back into regular animals. I'm trying to remember if this happened in the future, but I know we haven't. I'm pretty certain this has not happened in the past, with the exception of the ones that Adam has actually forcibly changed. And then we also get Jason Anders, newspaper reporter, who apparently exists just to uh, print the headline. Yeah. And to think, and to think skunks are pets. <laughs> but then we get Bruce Banner walking onto the scene. Yes, Counter Earth Bruce Banner. I always like when we run into the, the the doppelgangers of our main Marvel characters because this is a non Hulk, non superhero Bruce Banner. So we see what his life would be like if he didn't have the Hulk. In this Earth, Bruce Banner and Betty look like they're still a couple. But in regular Earth, Bruce Banner and Betty are very much not a couple anymore. Oh, in fact, yeah. If you the end of this issue, we see they are definitely not a couple. Yep. They have been decoupled. One thing I thought interesting here is that the relationship between uh, Bruce and Roth is definitely very different than what I expected. Because the more, way they made it look like, they made it look like, yeah, they made it look like that on Counter-Earth, everything was pretty much as it was on regular Earth. It's just maybe stop whatever would have happened from causing, you know, these people to become superpowered. And as we see later on this issue, when Rick Jones shows up at the Gamma Bomb site, Bruce Banner and him, both Bruce Banner and him, both make it to the uh, protective trench in time to not get hit with Gamma Ray. In the beginning of the Hulk series, um, Thunderbolt Ross is not impressed with the fact that his daughter is dating a milksop scientist type. But I have to wonder if Bruce Banner didn't get turned into the Hulk and didn't constantly have to be ducking out of situations and always weak from his transformations or confused or whatever, would he and Ross have eventually developed a more normal relationship that they never get the chance to? Because in regular Earth, it's not that long before Ross finds out that Banner's a Hulk. True. Yeah, the, the Hulk identity is out pretty early. But I mean, I, I mean, Ross already, like you said... Banner was a milksop to him, so, I mean, wasn't he already doing things, we have to assume, that made Ross think he was that way, or was it just Ross being prejudiced against anyone who was, you know, not military? If it was just the latter, we never got the chance to see. So I wonder yes. if we might have, if these had gone on, you know? Because I'm guessing maybe this is kind of indication that it was just a prejudice of Ross, so that maybe, you know, he was able to overcome, or Bruce was able to prove himself in some way as opposed to 
the other way, which is that Benner was a milksop and was always being weak and fainting or whatever. And Bruce is very respectful of uh, Ross's position, calls him sir throughout the conversation. So maybe maybe he's learned how to play to Bruce to Thunderbolt Boss's less pleasant personality traits, such as vanity and and um, authoritarianism and such. So yeah, probably that's my guess is that maybe both of them modified slightly enough that they could have a decent relationship. Because I mean, when Ross says in that first panel, "Betty, Bruce, thank God you're here," you know, that was when I first read that. I was like, "What? Really?" So yeah, but that was. Interesting. That was most of my thought was their relationship. And also wondering, does this mean this Bruce Banner is waiting to crack? Because wouldn't he still have been uh, abused by his father if everything was the same up until the origin of the Hulk? Most child abuse victims don't crack. So. Oh, okay. I would assume. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, what, what I meant, he was. They already showed in flashbacks that he had had, like, incidents of the other personalities popping up here and there before he, uh, became the whole. Oh, I see. I see. That's right. Yeah, it's not that I, if you're child Bruce, you're going to be cracking, but that he was, we've shown that Bruce Banner was going to crack no matter what. Yeah, there's a lot of that background that I'm not familiar with, but yeah, I guess it's possible that as he grew up, he became more balanced, this version did, or maybe we're just seeing him on a good day. Yeah, true. He has married Betty by this point, so whatever issues he might have are small enough that she was able to marry him. Or maybe because, actually, thinking about it now, since the issue wasn't complicated by the fact of him turning into a uh, 800-pound rage monster, that he was actually able to get something like therapy, medication, mm-hmm. and normal things that you would do to be able to have <laughs> a life if you have a... Because normally, if people have these problems, it is still very possible to go and have a normal, productive, happy life. But I guess if one of the problems always is as soon as you start to lose your temper, you turn into this eight, you know, thousand pound green gamma monster. It's going to smash, you know, the, a city. That just changes the drama. Yeah. That makes, you know, Xanax not really a good alternative. <laughs> I do like that, that the Hulk actually gets to confront Bruce Banner in this because as the Hulk, he's always kind of confused about the relationship between himself and his Banner identity. He often other personizes the banner identity, but he never actually gets to face him because they're the same person. And here he does. Here the Hulk actually gets to face off with Bruce Banner. I just think that's really neat. Oh yeah, I love that. I I, I enjoy that. Um, now I know they've done it a few times since then, especially in the uh, Peter David run, but also I think they've done it once or twice beforehand, where at least mentally they've confronted each other. But do you know, because I know you've read more early Hulk than I have, have you seen a face-to-face appearance between the two of them at all in any version, whether it was physical, mental, alternate realities, or is this the first No, in, in the early early Hulk that I've read for Avengers Inspirations, um, well, see, in those first six issues, there's no real status quo between the two of them. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the nature of Banner and Hulk and the transitions and everything is in constant flux throughout that year of the Hulk. So it's hard to say, but no, there's no, there is no mental confrontation between the two. Okay, so this might be the first one. I need to read more, like, you know, of the actual Tales to Astonish run. And, and this series has been going for 50-odd issues before it gets to here, so it's... There's, there's yeah. already quite a lot of Hulk history, but yeah, this might be the first time. Because... 
and I may be wrong here, I don't think they play a lot with the psychology of Bruce and the Hulk. I think Peter David was one of the, was the first one to really do a whole lot with that. Oh, no, yeah, he was, but I think from bits and pieces I've read, including this issue, I think he just kind of, there were threads dropped around here and there that he kind of, he put them all together. Okay. But there was stuff still put in there, because I think the fact that his father was abusive had been done, I think it was Al Milgram's run, which granted wasn't that long before Peter David, but still was before. And even just jumping ahead real quick to, because we see in here that uh, Bruce Banner and Betty have a son. And Which I like. what did Hulk say? Yeah, jumping ahead to like the last page or the next one of the last two pages when Hulk's in the ship going back to Earth. Can't hate man who raises good son. Can hate man who is what father should be. Mm. I don't know if it's just me knowing ahead of time now, or were they actually putting in there anything about Hulk having problems or Bruce Banner having issues or being abused by his father? I mean, I don't even know when Brian Banner first appeared or was mentioned. But at the very least, it kind of looks like they were implying something like that. They didn't have a good father, but he, you know, therefore, you know, when he sees a good father, he's OK. You know, he doesn't want to hit him. You know who you need for this episode? You need J. David Weider. That's what I was just thinking, because I know he's read more, a bit more of that. Yeah. And now that you mentioned that, I do remember reading that line. I actually have a note in the bottom of my notes here. Uh, wondering whether or not anybody had gone into Bruce Banner's father and childhood by this point. So, yeah. Um, when I saw Robert Bruce Banner Jr. walk out, it reminded me very much of Earth 2, where Batman has a daughter. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Huntress, yeah. Yeah. So you don't get that in the regular Earth. You just get Batman. But there's this exactly. other Batman out there who has a daughter and had a family and same thing here. There's this other Earth where Bruce Banner had a family and had a son. And it's just, I love when you have little differences like that. Yeah. Robert Bruce Banner Jr., age seven to be exact, which means I figured out he was born in 65. And that sounds right, because Hulk was 62, right? Yeah. So a year or two for him to probably come to grips with... Uh, him and Ross come to grips together. They better get married by like 64, 65, have a kid. That works. That works. And that makes sense also because back, hit, back then, I mean, the Marvel Universe is only around for, this is 72. It started late 61. So it's been around for just over a decade. So their Marvel timeline wasn't really as sliding as it is now. I mean, they pretty much were kind of implying that a lot of this stuff did happen like 10 years ago. Yeah, they... They didn't age at the rate that they should have done, but they did talk about events in real time. I was just reading an issue. Uh, my wife got me the Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Volume 1 for my birthday, and I've been reading an issue of X-Men a day from that every morning. And the Sentinels attack in issue 98 or 99, and Jean Grey mentions the fight that they had back in 1969. And this is an issue from 1976. So the characters are still in their late teens and early 20s. They're not old enough to have been fighting the Sentinels back in 66, 67, 69. And yet they reference events that happened back then. Yeah, there's still the Marvel sliding timeline anchors now, but it's nowhere near as you know off as it is nowadays. Right. Or if you're talking about early FF, they're talking about a couple of years ago when it was like 50. 
It just wouldn't make sense nowadays for somebody like the Amazing Spider-Man to talk about that vulture fight he had back in 1967. It just would not hold water. You could kind of get away with that in the 70s when you're talking about events a decade or so back, even though your characters aren't really a decade or so older than they were then. Yeah, I think that's one thing I like about the Bronze Age is that they kind of did imply that there was some change going on, some aging. I mean, look at Spider-Man then. He went from the beginning from being a high school student to college. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you know, if you have, you know, nowadays if there's a character in high school, you know them the big one's flipping out. They're like, they're old enough. You're making them go to college already? You're aging them too fast. It's only been 10 years. Yeah, he was in high school for three years of comics, and some of that was bi-monthly. So it's not yeah. that long. And he was in, he was in a undergrad college for about a decade. And then he went off to grad school. Yeah. To compare that to, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, but to compare that to Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, the Peter Parker there was around for how long was he around before he got killed? Like 10 years or more? About a decade, yeah. Was, and did they even ever imply that he changed grades? I think he would have had to, but they never showed it exactly. but yeah so um it's different ways of handling time and then you have comics like silver age superman which acts very much like a sitcom the exact yeah. same setup the exact same characters the exact same ages every single episode and yet they talk about things that happened years ago you know, that Superman's been around for years, that Jimmy Olsen has been his thing for years, that Supergirl has been on the planet for years. She's still that 15. Sounds kind of inappropriate. <laughs> that sounds kind of appropriate the way you said that about Jimmy, taking out of context. Oh. <laughs> Jimmy's been his thing for years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were very advanced back then. They were way ahead of their time. No, but I didn't think about that, but you're right. Yeah, it's very much like a sitcom, or well, at least not now, because now, I mean, sitcoms do a lot of changes. Right. But back then in the 50s and 60s and even up to like mid 80s, late mid late 80s, yeah, sitcom was like in its own, every episode was its own little self-contained world. And whether so the only difference happen. is whether your episode is black and white or in color. That's the only real yeah. difference. That, I mean, if you had a show that lasted five or six years, you could watch an episode from anywhere in those five or six years and would basically have the same setup. For the most part, yeah, 90% of those sitcoms. I mean, like I said, Nowadays, of course, you know, they're, they actually do character changes and stuff, but back before, let's say, the 90s, yeah, it didn't matter what it was. The only thing that would change was if they added a, ba- a new character. Yeah, because the baby got two old, so they had to bring in a new baby. Exactly. But speaking of the Hulk. Yes. <laughs> That's right, we have the Hulk back. So back to them. So anyway, we get back to the part where they're fight where uh, he meets up with Bruce Banner. And the rhino shows up, because the rhino, of course, the Hulk falls in with uh, Procutus and his good guy, new men. The rhino, of course, has to meet up with Cobra and his bad guys, because it makes sense. And we have a little Hulk fight here. I like the, uh, well, first of all, I like Hulk, what page is this? Um, I think it's 14, no, 12, where the Hulk's trying to figure out this whole thing when he sees Bruce Banner. He's just standing there, arms to the side, eyes closed. It's like Hulk thinking, give Hulk hours. <laughs> it's like hard to think why Hulk hates Banner, how Banner can be here. And just like looks like he's sleeping. He's like, I, I just need a little while. It's like that episode of Dinosaurs where the dad and his his work buddy sit down to have a think and like 
the sun sets and rises and sets and rises and sets and rises in the background while they're trying to figure out a problem. Yeah. Or Homer Simpson thinking where you see like a little monkey with symbols clacking, climbing away. Right, right. The next page with the full page splash wants to be more awesome than it is. The the body work is, is rather awkward in that page. Yeah, it looks like Kane's going for a... Uh, wait, is it Kane? No, it's Trimpy, I think, in this one, right? Yeah, Herb Trimpy. Yeah. It looks like he's going for a uh, Kirby-type splash page. He's trying to. Face, yeah, because the face on the lower corner, Procunus, he's on the lower left-hand corner looking at it, that's quite, like, large because he's really close. That's a that's very like Kirby, Kirby face. Yeah. yeah, and that's a very Kirby staple to have, like, a face or two in the bottom, but close up. But just the arms and the rhino's pose especially are are just kind of awkward. But I, do, I am amused that he has, like, his, his hand on Hulk's face, like, yeah, 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 I'm holding you back. You can't hit me. That's what I was thinking. Like, I'm waiting for the Hulk to start swinging, but missing because the rhino's holding him just far enough away. But meanwhile, you have this huge conflict between all these people from, I guess we'll call it Earth-1, like you have the Rhino and the Hulk, you have the two different sides of the new men, and just all the natives are caught in the middle. Yeah, because we got the Banner family hiding. On another uh, splash page. What the hell is going on? Yeah, exactly. Next splash page. Like, wow. I'm guessing maybe in the book this was like a double page splash kind of. Like, I wonder if I had the original issue, are these like right next to each other? No, there is an ad page between them. Um, oh. The Hulk and Rhino are on the right-hand page. You turn the page, you have ads on the left, and the other sp- uh, splash on the right. Oh, okay. Because that was a little weird, I thought, to have like these two splash pages. I thought maybe if they were next to each other, that would have made more sense. Right. Now, I didn't really expect to find any of our allegory here, but I was just kind of thinking about how we sort of have angels and demons fighting over the souls of men here. That's kind of, yeah, because there's really not much of the allegory there except for that. This is just yeah. kind of the Hulk jumping around going, what's this? But but the Cobra people and the Porcunius people, um, they're fighting for who's going. Yeah, here we go. The time is for your evil is ended, Cobra. For outnumbered though we be, still we fight the good fight, the fight to save men's souls. Yes, yes, I knew there was something about it there. You're right, yes. So yeah, I guess I guess we're putting Procunus to his side. It's more of the angels, as are you know, they're taking the role of the angels, so to speak. They're not the main guys there, but they're kind of like waiting to be backup. Because the the bulk of the job is up to Adam Warlock, in his entire role. But yeah, we have that now. And whatever you have on the rest of the punchy punchy run run, because I'm 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 a little bit out of stuff to say. Uh, the only thing I let's see, not much left. Uh, I do like the, how the fight ends, where the Hulk just grabs the Rhino by his horns and smashes him the, the, the whole body slam down. Smash. Yes, which I have to assume is taken from the uh, James Bond group. I was thinking James Bond. Yes. And actually, I looked it up real quick just to make sure I wasn't wrong. That was based on a real Russian counterintelligence agency called Smash. Yes. He was he was using I real real names know. there. I did not know that was real. Ah, I find that I find that fascinating now. Actually, James Bond is real, dude. Yes. No. Cool. No, no. Oh. <laughs> mm. 
Sorry to lift your lift your lift your hopes up and then smash them down to the ground. Smirch them down to the ground. Yeah, you just smirched me. Smirch. But yeah, so the ship has been fixed by the uh, soldiers. Lasers trying to abandon both of them on the planet Earth. Hulk grabs Rhino, throws them on. They leave. We get the whole thing about him. Uh, like I said before, about him talking about Bruce Banner's a good father here. I do like. Hulk learned something about himself. So hard to remember what Hulk learned. Right. But then Hulk Banner comments on that. He, he He's thinking later that the Hulk is at last growing and learning who he is and what he is. There may be hope of taming him. And he's, he's holding out hope for him and Betty, too. Even though at that very moment there's a wedding going on between Mr. Talbot and Ms. Um, well, no longer Ms. Ross. Mrs. Talbot now. Yes, Mr. and Mrs. Talbot. So, sadly... And actually, the thing I find sad... Now, I don't know. I mean, I'm being stereotypical here. But generally, women usually... A lot of women, at least a lot of them, especially at this time period, would have been growing up dreaming of a beautiful wedding. You know? And poor Betty Ross, both times she gets married, it's on friggin' Hulkbuster base. (laughs) Of all the places to get married, right? Yeah, I'm like, really? That's who you get married? Well, I was she, hoping at least doesn't the first she one was live nice. in the southwestern desert area? I mean, this is probably the nicest establishment they have. Well, that's true, yeah. Unless you're going to fly your entire on. wedding uh, wedding party to New York or something. Mm, yeah, that's true. I guess. That's right. I didn't think about that. But I was like, wow, poor Betty. Don't you just love happy endings? I like how they end that, yeah. Here's a spoonful of irony to go with your Marvel comic, because that's not unusual. Marvel irony? Never. Never. That's like, you know, Peter Parker being able to make his date, but she doesn't like him. She likes Spider-Man. Or, no, she hates Spider-Man. Or in the case of Black Cat, she only likes Spider-Man and doesn't like Peter. Yes. Uh, poor Petey. Anyway. And that's it. Um, did you have anything about any of the, uh, the letters or anything? Because I actually have letters in here. Hulk letters? Yeah, they actually have the letter page on here. Yeah, I didn't look at the Hulk letters, because they were Hulk letters. Did you see anything interesting? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, a few little notes I just thought real quick. Well, the first letter is from a Bruce Gavlin from Vista, California, asking about when the X-Men will be back. And right now they said, uh, maybe. Because this is obviously a few years before the X-Men was uh, brought back. Oh, here's one. That's right. Haven Metziger from Columbia City, Indiana is asking for more female characters, or super strong female characters, or, sorry, powered. He said, uh, I'm not suggesting you use Betty Ross or Jarella, nor that you create a female Hulk. Female spinoffs of characters usually don't work too well. Which I thought was fun, because, you know, who wants a female version of the Hulk? That is really, really funny. But, you know, I, I have to say, I think She-Hulk, they do a really good job of distinguishing her from the Hulk. Oh, yeah, she's definitely, well, she's the opposite. Yeah. You know, the Hulk always has issues. You know, whether, as, as, even in his best periods, he's always having issues with who he is and what he is. And she's just like, I love it. And that's it. Not quite as different as Spider-Man and Spider-Woman, who really are completely unrelated. They just have a similar motif. But, um, yeah. but then, on the other hand, you have Superman and Supergirl, who aren't that different, really. At least not in their early versions. 
Supergirl is just a little... Supergirl is a female Superboy, is what it is. Yeah, it's very much a Superboy one. Yeah, the kind of stories that she gets into are very much like Superboy stories. I mean, the only time they're really different is before her adoptive parents knew she was Supergirl. Or did they find out right away? I forget. Um, Her adoptive parents find out that she's Supergirl, not right away, but pretty soon. Because Supergirl had a a nine-month story arc where she's going to get revealed as Supergirl to the world, and Superman's not going to leave her hidden in the orphanage forever anymore. But then she loses her powers, and she's just a girl. Um, And over the course of the nine parts, she gets her powers back, but then there are some other problems, and she finally resolves those problems. While she's powerless, she gets adopted. And they had tried to adopt her a few times before other people had, but Supergirl always put it off because having powers... She didn't want to put any adoptive parents in the situation of having to take care of a superpowered girl. So being powerless, she lets herself get adopted. Then she gets her powers back. Then Superman shows up and says, hey, new parents, um, I'm Superman, and, and, and you just adopted my, my cousin Supergirl. And we're going to go tell the whole world about it, but we want to tell you first because, you know, that'd be awkward if you didn't know. Yeah. So that all happens over the yeah. course of a nine-month storyline. Oh, okay. But yeah, other than that part, I would say, yeah, it's pretty much Superboy stories, except that Superboy doesn't have anyone really in, over him being kind of a dick. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, outside of it, it makes sense. They don't want to change the Superman story. So, of course, they have Supergirl in the orphanage or living with the adoptive parents. But honestly, if you go in story, it's like, why didn't you take her in, jerk? Right, right. You know, she's your only family, you know, adopted or not, because the kids are dead, and you're just like, go in an orphanage and go away. <laughs> That's kind of a dick move. Eh, Superman's on the dick list. Silver Age Superman, at least. Yeah. Well, that's why they have a superdickery.com. What else did you yeah. see on the letters page? Anything else? Oh, there was one more. No, the only reason I, wanted, I had to say that, though, was because it's the first time he's appearing on the list here, though. Ah, I gotcha. But... Oh, yeah, but one thing I was amused by, the last letter of the page is by Ted Holden from Washington, D.C. He's liking the fact that uh, when they used the president, they made it look definitely like it was President Nixon, the real president, as opposed to some, just some generic old guy who was supposed to be president. And like he says, hopefully we'll see more of him here and less in the Washington Post. <laughs> Watergate, of course, had happened a few months earlier. Uh, I'm like, oh, sorry, Ted, I don't think you're going to be very happy then. Because you're going to see a lot more of Nixon in the Post in a lot of other papers in the next few years. As, as an X-Men reader, I did happen to notice that same Bruce Gravelin letter you mentioned. He talks about a previous letter and says, I noticed that in a letter from one John Hechtman, the age-old question of where are you hiding the X-Men came up. I've also noticed that whenever this question is asked, you never answer. Answer me, please. Because this was an era when the X-Men was not being published, except as a bi-monthly reprint comic. Um, Nobody knew what to do with the X-Men. They were just, you know, this book that never really sold well, but seemed to be really liked by the few people who bought it. So it was in cancellation, except it was, you know, continuing to be published as a uh, reprint comic. And in the... The response, they do say that they hope to go back to all original stories when the reprints get caught up a bit. So let's just say that anything is possible and let it go at that for now. So they they would like to do more X-Men stories, but they have no plans 
And uh, it's just weird yeah, to think of, of, an, of a world where the X-Men are so popular now. There was a decade, most of a decade, when um, there were no X-Men. Yeah, because Giant Size 1 doesn't come out until 75. So we're like three years away from any X-Men. Right. I mean, they do appear in smatterings here and there, I know. At some point in the early 70s, I forget exactly when it is, the Beast has his solo Amazing Adventures run and then joins the Avengers. Right. And he's in the Avengers by the time Giant Size comes out. You You have occasional stories like that. Like the Angel got a backup strip in three issues of whatever. It actually changed the books because they didn't know where to put it. Um, I think it was just one of those oh, things. One of those, yeah, he goes up against a bad guy who, um, the Dazzler, no relation. And it starts out, I want to say it's in Kazar 1 and 2, but then the third chapter of it gets published somewhere else. It's just one of those, it was in a Marvel Tales issue that it gets published. It was oh, one of those okay. books that doesn't really know where to go. I think they just had it in a drawer and had to pay the guy, so they published it. Okay, see, I know who that original Dazzler is, because if you ever read uh, X-Men The Hidden Years by John Byrne... He comes back? Yeah, I don't know if you ever read that book, or you know of it? I know of it. Yeah, it was a book he did where, for anyone who doesn't. The book John Byrne did that was supposed to bridge the gap of the X-Men between uh, 66 or 67, whenever it was, that they got cancelled. I forget which one. And... Uh, Giant Size 1, showing where the team was, and also he was trying to fill in where they, where they were and what they were doing in between the few appearances they have in the late six, in the late 70, early 70s when they were camping. Because gotcha. they appear in a few issues of, uh, some of them appear in a few issues of Captain America, I know, when they do the original um, Secret Empire story. And there's that issue of Marvel Team Up, like I think it's number four, where they appear, but without costume. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they do have a smattering of appearances. They're not nowhere, but there's no ongoing X-Men story. And uh, a lot of those yeah. adventures kind of came closer together towards the end of the, the hiatus years. Um, so right now in 72, I think it's fair to say that no one had really seen the X-Men much in a while. Yeah, Sadly. I think there's one more appearance in the Hulk. I think in a, couple, like in a, in a year or two in the Hulk, he fights the Juggernaut. Yes, and, and have the gets knocked Lord off. Of shop. Yeah, and Professor X because they use the uh, or maybe no, I think that they use a, set, a different one. Because this one, I think it had Marvel Girl and Cyclops and Professor X. So the Juggernaut's helmet gets knocked off, and Professor X, the Hulk thinks he's beaten, walks away. Juggernaut's about to come after him from behind, and I think Professor X knocks him out mentally. Okay, kind of like just pops him at the very end and goes bam. But anyways, but yeah, so. I like when they put the old letter. I like reading the old letter pages, though. It's kind of fun to see what people were thinking or wondering, especially with uh, the foreknowledge now, what will happen. Yeah. <laughs> I like the, 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 the X Men Omnibus also has the letters pages from the issues in it, and that's always fun to read. Oh, I love the people who hate Wolverine back then. <laughs> it's amusing to read. Yeah. Just like Ted Holden's letter. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I'm sure if this thing with the post by Nixon will go away very soon, Ted, don't worry. No one's going to pay attention to this Watergate thing anymore. All right, well, if you enjoyed hearing the synopsis of the issue or what me and John said about it, you want to read it yourself, besides finding the original one, there's also, you can get it in The Essential Hulk Volume 4, uh, The Incredible Hulk Complete Collection DVD-ROM. You can still find that somewhere. You'll probably find that pretty cheap. And also digitally on Marvel 
Digital Comics Unlimited website and app. And there's no masterworks for this one. Um, it was randomly included in a Marvel Treasury edition, an uh, oversized issue. Really? Which one? They don't have that listed. Number 17. Right. Number 17 has Among Us Walks the Golem from 134, Cry Hulk, Cry Havoc from 150, which I think is what an X-Men that one, and Frenzy on a Faraway World, the one we just read. I did not know that. Okay. My information was, not, was incomplete then. Excellent. Thank you. Do you want to do the Adam's Friends this month? Sure. We only have- and so checking in with Adam's Friends this month, we're going to divvy them up between this episode and next because we have two issues in one month. So over in Fantastic Four, 129, we have a story entitled The Frightful Four Plus One, which could have been entitled The Frightful Five, but that would probably infringe on some other team's copyrights. So, Roy Thomas and John Buscema are doing this story, and the Human Torch quits the FF. Again. And the Thing is embattled, plus the return of the Frightful Four starring a nefarious new recruit you'll never forget. Should we spoil who it is? Yes. I think I know who it is, but do you know? I don't. <laughs> I think it's Thundra. Oh, yeah, this is when Thundra joins the team. Right, okay, yes. So, Thundra, the, the uh, femme fatale, who has gone a few rounds with the Thing and the Hulk. She's she's yep. joining the team here. Yeah, I'm here on the cover there. Because, you know, he can hit. Okay, good. And I think we could do a really quick version of Adam's powers in this episode. Standing. He plays very well. <laughs> he and does. Because he doesn't do much else. Not a whole lot. But I think after after pretty much destroying Counter-Earth last issue, I think that he deserves a bit of a break. Yeah, I, all that destructive energy, you know, it's just a lot of a lot of sadness and, and emotion that he's got to sort of purge from himself. So let's go stand in the in the wooded mountainside for a while and let our let our forehead glow. I think they're having a picnic. I don't what know, a, or maybe I just assumed they're having a picnic, but and that's a great way to idea. calm down after some after some municipal destruction. It's it's nice to have a picnic. Picnic with a friend you almost murdered. <laughs> like sorry, chicken salad. So sorry. All right, John. Well, thank you very much for being back again. It's always it's a pleasure. Warlock, warlock. We're glad to have you around, and would you like to tell people where they can find you in case they found you engaging and want to hear more? In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at com. Excellent. So we'll see you next time, John, for Warlock 3. I'll be here with bells on. Woohoo! Sorry about the bell noise, people. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. Okay, with that out of the way... If you're looking for other places you can find me, 
First of all, I will go to the show's Tumblr and Facebook pages. The Tumblr page can be found at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com and the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash resurrectionsadamwarlock. You can also find Brian and myself on our other show, Four Color Fanboys. You can search for it on iTunes or go to fourcolor.podwits.com. I also did a guest spot on another show recently. Look up Tales from the Long Box podcast and can hear me talk to those guys in episode 170 of that show. Talesfromthelongbox.com or on iTunes. Finally, you can send me an email at resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com or be even more awesome and leave a review on iTunes. In fact, we have an iTunes review to talk about now. This five-star review is from Dancing Jim and is titled Geek Pod Approved. <clears throat> really enjoying the look back into the history of one of my favorite cosmic characters, right behind Nova. This pod is partially responsible for pushing me to start my own podcast, Geek Pod. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Jim. First of all, I'm flattered that I was able to at least partially inspire you to start your own show. Since Fantastic Cast was partially responsible for pushing me to start this show, I guess yours can be considered a sort of grandchild of theirs in a kind of roundabout, bastardized way. Anyway, both GeekPod and Fantastic Cast can be found on iTunes. GeekPod is spelled G-33-K-P-O-D. Alright, I wasn't going to play any of the original feedback, because it's kind of way out of date, but I did play that part of the old feedback, because that review was actually the first contact between myself and Paul Showens from the podcast GeekPod who at this point I've actually met in person and his family. So, hey Paul, how you doing? Just thought that was pretty cool. Alright, here's our actual feedback for episode 177, Identity Cannot Be Decided by Committee, which was part 17 of our Wilderness Years, with Brent Chandler and John Wilson. On Facebook, the post about that episode got likes and shares from Neil Vig, Magazines and Monsters, Clinton Robinson, Joe Zidano, and Derek William Crabb. On Twitter, we got likes and retweets from Jason Snake Venable, The Bat Pod, Viet Win, Capes and Lunatics Podcast Network, Ghost Spider Groupies, The Source Material Comics Podcast, Doc Strange, Ray, Between the Pages Blog, Pointing Harrison Ford, Anti-Wife Equation, Chris Lydon, The Daily Rios, Vig, Clifford Riley, My Comic Book Collection 70s to 80s, Dano underscore Kozovic, Maria Paz Anasico, Static underscore Thunder, El Karuka and Joe JK underscore 26. And on Tumblr, the post about the episode got, like, got a like from EVP blog. Alright, you want to hear your name said here? Well, very easy. Like and share the posts on different social media. Go to our Tumblr page, resurrectionadamwarlock.tumblr.com. On Twitter, at AdamThanosPod. And on Facebook, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box, and our page will pop up. Now, if you want to hear more from me, you can hear me pretty much every week on the L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D cast. That can be found on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed. Links in the show notes. And on that show, we talk about DC Comics' late 80s, early 90s sci-fi series, Legion. That's the one with the acronym and Vrildox and Lobo, not Legion of Superheroes. And in fact, at this point, we are not talking about Legion anymore. We are talking about one of their follow-up series, Rebels which started in 2008 or 9. I believe it was 9. Go give it a listen. Those Rebel Ups issues are really good. A lot of fun. Tony Bedard writing. Awesome series. 
really cool reimagining of the, of the character Starl the Conqueror. Now, if you have more things you want to say, you don't want to just like and share the posts on social media, although you should anyway, but you have things you want to say, well, send me an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. And don't forget, this show is part of The Collective. The Collective was started by a few like-minded podcasters who wanted to network in the most traditional sense. It has become a repository for ideas, crossovers, and potential guest appearances, and you are going to hear a promo for one of the other Collective shows right now. Hey there! Do you like comic books? Do you like superhero TV and movies? Well, come on over and check out the Capes and Lunatics podcast. We have such shows as Capes and Lunatics and Super Connectivity, where we cover everything new and current and popular in the world of superheroes. And we also have episode-by-episode reviews of the Marvel Netflix shows and a monthly discussion of everything current on the DC Comics character Nightwing and a few other surprises all the time. So come join us for the Capes and Lunatics podcast. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our return back to the Bronze Age. Please join us again for our next episode, with Brian and I still working our way through the Thanos graphic novel. That one should be out by the end of November. See you then. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast is a fan-made production, and this fan makes no profit off of it, nor does it infringe or attempt to infringe on any trademark or copyright held by Marvel, DC, Image, Valiant, First, Vertoic, Antarctic, or pretty much anyone else. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our return back to the Bronze Age. Please join us again for our next episode, with Brian and I still working our way through the Thanos graphic novel. That one should be out by the end, end of November. Blah, 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 blah. And I do at least speaking, of, speaking of Star Wars, though, yeah. um, I was reminded this morning that Star Wars Weekly, the UK comic, started running Warlock as a backup strip, Warlock reprints, oh. in the, uh, 1979. So I'm not which sure Warlock? which Warlock stories. Yeah, I'm trying to find that out now. Um, getting information on Star Wars Weekly is not easy. Yeah, I'm actually, I know, because usually I get my reprint information from Comic Book TV, and they usually have on there, a lot of times they have like a, you know, foreign reprints. So let me try that real quick.
Oh, that's cool. Okay, comics.org, Comic Vine, the Wikipedia. None of these are listing out a story listing of credits, so I don't know. Um, there's a good Marvel UK database out there. Yeah, I have to look it up. I don't know. There's just Star Wars Weekly Warlock search. That's what that tells me. British Comics Wiki. Oh, that was useful. Okay, I do have that they started running Adam Warlock from issue 45. The Micronauts from 51. Star-Lord from 15. Guardians of the Galaxy from 70. And Deathlock from 89. Yeah, um, Comic TV. They don't have all the issues listed, though. They only like a smattering. But yeah, they have 42, and then it goes to 97. And 97 does list as uh, multiple stories. What is it? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Deathlock, and Tales of the Watcher. Oh, well, we can look it up later. Then they make yeah. it Oh, well. But I didn't know that. That's something at least I now have to look up. Cool. Okay, I know they did do Jim Starlin's Warlock, but I don't know if they did the earlier stuff. Because um, there's this one guy who blogged about it. He says, um, the backup strips were a whole other matter. Thanks to Star Wars Weekly, I got to catch up on all the adventures of Jim Starlin's Warlock, John Burns, Star-Lord, the Guardians of the Galaxy, and the Tales of the Watcher. Plus, I got another chance to read Man-Gods from Beyond the Stars. Um... So there is that. Those Star-Lord black and whites were pretty good, too. I really enjoyed yeah, those, I, whatever it is. Yeah, I've been getting those. I've been reading the, uh, the sort of mini uh, extra-large issues, mini trades I've been putting out of those. So like 70 fuck issues, but they reprint like four or five, reprint like four or five you know, issues of the Star-Lord stuff. Mm-hmm. The other stuff, and that's been fun. Okay, yeah, no, I have to keep looking up. Yeah, because it's not listed on Comic TV. Because I just looked up Adam Warlock himself for all his appearances. And they don't list that title at all. <sighs> Frustrating. You ready? Sure. Oh, yeah, there's an actual purpose because I just, just talking about comics. <clears throat> okay, and one, two, 